Good morning. Biden supports Iran protests, the nuclear threat, Cheney on Trump, Medicare Advantage as a money pit, five years since Me Too. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Saturday morning, October 15th, 2022. Joe Biden says he's stunned by the mass protests in Iran and that the United States stands with that country's brave women. I know I look over there and I see free Iran. And I want you to know we stand with the citizens and brave women of Iran for real, for real. And who right now are demonstrating to secure their very basic fundamental rights. Women and men should have the right, the right to freedom of expression and assembly and women, women all over the world are being persecuted in various ways. But they should be able to wear in God's name what they want to wear. No one should be telling them what to wear. And Iran has to end the violence against its own citizens, simply exercising their fundamental rights. And, uh, you know, uh, Masha Amini's death uh, was... Uh, I, I've been in doing foreign policy a long, long time. It stunned me what it awakened in Iran. And it's awakened something that I don't, don't think will be quieted in a long, long time. And so I want to thank you all for speaking out. I want to thank the Persian community here for being so vocal and continue. It matters. The president was speaking at a college in Irvine, California. Iran has seen its biggest wave of demonstrations in years after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini following her arrest by the morality police. More than 100 people have been killed since. The unrest has continued despite what Amnesty International called an unrelenting, brutal crackdown that includes an all-out attack on child protesters, leading to the deaths of at least 23 minors. In related news, in its toughest warning to protesters since Amini's death in police custody, Iran's Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khomeini on Friday said that no one should dare think they can uproot the Islamic Republic. Khamenei compared the Islamic Republic to an unshakable tree. That seedling is a mighty tree now and no one should dare think they can uproot it, he said on state TV. Some of the deadliest unrest has been in areas home to ethnic minorities with long-standing grievances against the state, including Kurds in the northwest and Baluchis in the southeast. And in news from Russia's special military operation in Ukraine, Russian President Vladimir Putin said yesterday he expects his mobilization of army reservists for combat in Ukraine to be completed in about two weeks, meaning he can end an unpopular call-up meant to counter gains by Ukraine's army. The Russian president also warned the West he hoped they had enough intelligence to avoid direct military confrontation with Russia. Putin said it would be a foolish step that could lead to global catastrophe. Earlier this week, NATO General Secretary Jen Stoltenberg said a Russian victory in Ukraine would be regarded as a defeat of the whole Western alliance. Moscow has long warned the West against sending arms to Kyiv, saying it'll only prolong the fighting and increase the risk of direct confrontation between Russia and NATO. 
With Russia and the West spewing nuclear threats at each other since the Russian invasion began, with Putin threatening to use small tactical nuclear weapons and President Joe Biden threatening Armageddon, the biblical end of the world, in response, the world is closer to nuclear conflict than it's been since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. The director of policy at Plowshares Fund, an anti-nuclear peace group based in Washington, D.C., is Tom Kalina. He tells the news the tough talk could lead to a deadly mistake. This is the closest we've come to a nuclear conflict in, in over 50 years, probably since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. It's very dangerous. And there are lessons we learned back in 1962 in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is that nuclear weapons make conflict incredibly dangerous, and that when nuclear weapons become part of a conflict, even in a threat kind of way that they are today, the way we get out of it is, is basically through good luck. There's good management, and there's bad things you can do, but mistakes always happen, miscommunications always happen, and mistakes that you make when nuclear weapons are at play are just so many times worse than mistakes you make in any other situation, even conventional war. You can make mistakes that don't end civilization as we know it, but when you're dealing with nuclear weapons, the stakes are just much, much higher. So we need to start learning the right lessons from these crises, which is that nuclear weapons just make everything worse. This whole idea of using tactical, what's a tactical nuclear weapon? Is there really such a thing as a tactical versus a strategic nuclear weapon? Tactical nuclear weapons are really a, a misnomer. There is no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. All nuclear weapons, whatever their size or shape, would change the strategic situation we are in. Just think of the Hiroshima bomb back in 1945. By today's standards, that would be a tactical nuclear weapon, given the size of the blast, 15 kilotons. But it completely changed the war, and it completely changed history. The use of nuclear weapons is never tactical. And when people talk about tactical nuclear weapons, what they really mean is short range that the delivery system they're on, whether it be an airplane or a missile or, or, or a truck, that it's short range and meant for use in the battlefield. Whereas strategic weapons are long range, things you could fire from Russia to the United States and vice versa. So that's what they're talking about. But there's this misperception that these battlefield, these non-strategic nuclear weapons are somehow small. And nothing could be further from the truth. Um, they could be small. They could be smaller than the Hiroshima bomb. But they could also be 10 times larger than the Hiroshima bomb because there are, quote-unquote, tactical nuclear weapons out there that are 100 kilotons or more. So we should not fall into the trap of equating battlefield nuclear war, the kind of war we could see in Ukraine, as small or somehow safe or somehow inconsequential. Any use of nuclear weapons would be crossing a red line that we have not seen since 1945, 77 years. And the reason leaders don't want to cross that line is because you don't know where it will go. If one side uses nuclear weapons, what does the other side do? And where does it go from there? And do mistakes feed a cycle of escalation where quickly things get out of control? And before you know it, you've got it, in President Biden's words, Armageddon. Is it possible to denuclearized to uh, what the United Nations and so many people, so many nations have signed on to a uh, nuclear prohibition treaty there. Uh, can we ever just take these things, can it be put back in the box, the genie in the bottle? We can certainly pursue that. The goal here should be the elimination of nuclear weapons. It's a very difficult task. 
all the more so because Russia, by revealing its conventional weakness on the battlefield with Ukraine, has become more dependent on its nuclear weapons. So in some ways, as the world is seeing sort of the futility of nuclear weapons and the need to eliminate them, the job is getting harder to do that. But we must try. I mean, I think the world community needs to unite against Russia to say we need to eliminate these weapons, keep working with Russia as much as possible, but understanding that we can't force Russia to do this. We need to convince, we need to work with Russia to do this. That'll be a difficult job, but it has to start now. Tom Kalina is Director of Policy at Plowshares Fund, an anti-nuclear peace group based in Washington, D.C. In national news, workers have begun loading radioactive fuel into a new nuclear reactor in Georgia. Georgia Power says workers will transfer 157 fuel assemblies into the reactor core at Plant Volktol, southeast of Augusta, in the next few days. It's the first new American nuclear reactor built in decades. There are already two reactors operating at the plant, with fuel being loaded into a third unit and a fourth unit still under construction. The Georgia Public Service Commission approved the new reactors in 2012, and the third reactor was supposed to start generating power in 2016, but fell behind as costs ballooned from $14 to $30 billion. Nuclear Regulatory Commission approval was delayed because much of the third reactor's wiring had to be redone after federal regulators found major flaws. Volktel is the only nuclear plant under construction in the United States, and its cost is considered another failure in attempting to restart nuclear power in this country. Few plants have been completed since the March 1979 meltdown at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania. And GOP Representative Lynn Cheney of Wyoming recalled returning to the United States Capitol on the night of January 6th after the supporters of President Trump stormed the building and disrupted the electoral vote count. She recalls walking into the National Statuary Hall, the original House chamber, and then walked into the rotunda and was drawn to Trumbull's rendition of George Washington resigning his commission. But one of them depicts the moment in 1793 when George Washington resigned his commission, when he handed control of the Continental Army back to Congress. And Trumbull, who painted this, said he thought, quote, this was one of the highest moral lessons ever given to the world, this voluntary handing back of power. And it it began the peaceful transfer of power in this nation. And it is something that binds us together as Americans. It is a miracle, that peaceful transfer of power that has been honored by every American president until Donald Trump. Everyone. Cheney said in Statuary Hall she found National Guard troops sitting on the floor recovering from the day's violence and noticed the statue of Cleo, the muse of history, who is there to remind members that their deeds are recorded for history. Cheney is one of two Republicans on the January 6th committee. In recent elections, she lost her seat to a Trump-backed candidate. And Thursday's 10th meeting of the January 6th committee was marked by the release of new videos of legislators huddling in a safe room as protesters stormed through the halls of the nation's capital. There were also videos of several Trump aides cavorting with known white supremacists, several on trial for sedition. The new information inspired the comedians at the Colbert Show to riff on a comment by Democrat and committee member Jamie Raskin of Maryland. The inner circle includes the three people that he pardoned, Flynn, Stone and Bannon. I call them the Flintstones. Flintstones. 
Flintstones, meet the Flintstones, they're the pain of our democracy. He's alright, he's a cute freak, and he looks like Batman's enemy. Still free, cause of pardons they receive, they're all fans of white supremacy. Let's see how the Flintstones had a yabba dabba coo time, a dabba coo time, we hope they all do Flynn refers to retired General Michael Flynn Stone to Trump aide and dirty trickster Roger Stone. The third character is Steve Bannon. The song is the theme from the 1960s cartoon of a sophisticated Neolithic family, the Flintstones. With a key midterm election looming in just a few weeks, campaigns across the country have been heating up. On Thursday, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, who's been hammered on crime issues by incumbent Trump supporter Senator Ron Johnson, hit back during a debate. No on more, the defund police is yeah, what he brought up. No, no police officers in this country were more dispirited than the ones who were present at the United States Capitol on January 6th. One, please hold off. Please hold off on that. Audience, please. I'm sorry. I'm trying to tell the audience, please. So go ahead. 140 officers injured. One crushed in a revolving door. Another hit in the head with a fire extinguisher. Another stabbed with a metal stake. So this talk about support for law enforcement, it's not real. It's not true because he decided to play politics when he, the person he didn't want to win presidential election. You're right there. You have to end it. And he did bring you up again. We'll still get you to that question, yep. Mr. Barnes. And I immediately and forcefully and repeatedly condemned the violence on January 6th, unlike my opponent, who basically just ignores Audience, the 570 riots, the 2,000 law enforcement officers injured during the summer riots, and he incited the Kenosha riots the night after the first riot. Lieutenant Governor Barnes held a press conference and said it sure looked like it was a vendetta carried out against a member of the community. Rather than providing the manpower, he incited two more nights of riots. That's a pretty miserable record when it comes to uh, Mr. Barnes. Mr. Barnes, you have every right to respond to that. Exactly. It, it has to be said that he called those folks patriots. He called them tourists, the people who were beating up police officers in the United States Capitol, the people that were there to protect him. He said he wasn't afraid. He said if they were Black Lives Matter or Antifa, he may have been afraid. But because they were the people who he riled up, of course he wasn't afraid. All right, now the question to Mr. Barnes. Though. Culture war issues like crime and sympathy for protesters have dominated the Wisconsin race and others across the country to the detriment of arguably more important issues like health care. The United States has long-standing problems delivering health care to its citizens. About half of government health insurance recipients have been shifted to a managed care program called Medicare Advantage. The purpose is to save money, but health and policy professor emeritus James G. Kahn of the University of California, San Francisco, tells the news the program is actually costing more. Most Medicare Advantage plans rely on a narrow provider network, so a limited list of doctors who participate in their plan. And some of those lists are incorrect. So they had list doctors who actually are not participating. And then even if the lists are correct, the doctor you may need for a particular health problem may not be in the network. And then you have to struggle to find someone out of the network. And that can be difficult and expensive. Also, they uh, definitely will deny prior approval requests and billing requests sometimes incorrectly. So they're more likely to deny care. So there's a definite limitations with Medicare Advantage. The reason that the city may be interested is that if the city retirement program 
is paying for those Medigap policies that I mentioned in order to help people in traditional Medicare with cost sharing, those Medigap policies are not uh, necessary in Medicare Advantage because Medicare Advantage plans are overpaid. They're making huge profits. They're often restricting care in the ways that you describe, um, and they share a small portion of those profits to make it easier for most people in Medicare Advantage to get care without cost sharing. Now, the, the downside is there's lots of evidence that when people get sick in Medicare Advantage, and then when they get sick, they need more health care, they're more likely to face financial barriers to care. So that's a real important trade-off. They may do better when they're healthy, but when they're sick, they'll do worse. And there's lots of evidence also that Medicare Advantage plans manage to get rid of the sickest people, probably by making it hard to get care, and those people return to traditional Medicare. Basically, it's a game that they're playing to get these extra profits, to make life as easy as possible for the healthier people in Medicare Advantage. But once you get sick, it's harder to get care, more costly, and more likely to miss out on care because of the financial requirements at that point. How is that different from what they do in Canada? So Canada, like quite a few other countries around the world, has what's called a single-payer uh, health insurance approach, also in this country referred to as improved Medicare for all. Everyone's covered and with really good insurance. In the United States, many, even most of the people who are insured have high deductibles, two to $5,000. As a result, they're underinsured. They're, they don't have the coverage that they need to get care. So in Canada, if you're in Canada, you don't have that problem. If you want better care, you got to pay for it. And there's this mythology that somehow we can control our health care costs. The, the phrase that's used is having patients put skin in the game. If patients have to contribute toward the cost, that they'll be more prudent consumers. Well, it turns out most of the costs in healthcare are not voluntary. When you get sick, when you get seriously ill, particularly in the last year of life, you're not going to be scrimping here and there because of cost sharing. We spend 50 to 100% more than any other country in the world. Previous to Medicare Advantage, they patients would be hypochondriacs, basically, and get all kinds of no, crazy that's, stuff. That's simply, yeah. The mayor may have said that, but that's simply incorrect. Yes, of course, there's some people who overuse care, but there are going to be people who overuse care in Medicare Advantage as well. And there is zero evidence having people join with a for-profit managed care organization or HMO like in, in Medicare Advantage will control costs. In the end, you reduce care but you increase overall cost. The math doesn't add up. It's a myth that Medicare Advantage will save money for the system. It increases costs to the system, and the increases go mainly from the taxpayer to the shareholders. Health and Policy Professor Emeritus James G. Kahn of the University of California, San Francisco. The New York Times recently published an article on Medicare Advantage calling the program a cash monster for insurance companies. 
closer to home. Cuba Gooding Jr. will receive no jail time after admitting in court to forcibly touching a woman at a New York nightclub. The actor complied with the terms of a conditional plea agreement that was reached earlier in the year. Gooding completed six months of alcohol and behavior modification counseling, allowing him to withdraw his misdemeanor plea. He'll not have a criminal record as a result. Gooding was initially arrested in 2019 after an incident where Kelsey Harbert told police that Gooding squeezed her breast without her consent at the Magic Hour rooftop bar and lounge. This caused two more women to come forward with accusations toward the actor from incidents that occurred in the prior year. Herbert says she wasn't happy with the result of the plea deal. I've waited three years for the opportunity to speak about the injustice of Cuba Gooding Jr., I had hoped to do so in the context of a trial in which he would be held accountable for the irreparable damage he did to me one summer night in 2019. Today I was robbed of that chance by a plea deal that never should have been considered. Cuba Gooding Jr. forcibly grabbed, squeezed, and fondled my breast within the first 10 seconds of meeting me at the Magic Hour Club in Manhattan. I reported him that night, and he was arrested three days later. After that, in addition to the problems I dealt with inside the system, I had to endure three years of humiliation from his team. Cuba made a statement attacking my mental health in the press, claiming I had a warped mental state. His team then filed a motion with the court to question me about my breast size on the stand claiming that insecurity around my breast size might have led me to believe I was sexually assaulted. Early on, the system began making special accommodations for him. Every time I questioned why he was receiving VIP treatment, I was given the same answer, because of who he is. At first, I was told he would be in a sex offenders program one which has a reputation for being very firm with offenders. Second, I was told he would also be completing a separate alcohol abuse program. But because of who he is, he was allowed to trade both programs for time with his personal therapist. Because of who he is, he was allowed to call this informal therapy, alcohol and behavioral modification treatment. Because of who he is, he has been able to retract his guilty plea six months later to erase his criminal record. According to Cuba's lawyer, Mr. Rothman, the defense reached out to District Attorney Alvin Bragg personally to cut this deal for Cuba. And this is the same Alvin Bragg who campaigned on ending special treatment for celebrities accused of crime. As a victim for whom charges have been filed, each concession was deeply offensive to me. Herbert's lawyer is Gloria Allred, who reminded reporters this month marks five years since the Me Too movement gave women who've been assaulted by powerful men a voice. But Allred adds celebrities are still getting away with it. In my experience as a victim's rights attorney, the decision of Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg to allow Mr. Gooding Jr. to walk away with a deal which allows him to avoid trial and erase any criminal record is an insult to many of his accusers. And in my opinion, it appears to be a prosecutorial gift to a celebrity who is undeserving of such an outcome. Many feel that under District Attorney Alvin Bragg, 
There are two standards of justice, one for a celebrity and none for them. This month marks the five-year anniversary of what has been called the Me Too movement, named after a hashtag on the internet. Because many women have been brave enough to come forward, either to law enforcement or in civil cases or both, there has been accountability and just consequences for many who violated the rights and bodily integrity of women. I hope that others will not be deterred but what I can, by what I consider to be an unjust outcome in this case. It's important to know that my co-counsel, Casey Walnowski, and I will show you who he is shortly. Uh, and I still have a civil case pending in federal court in New York against Mr. Gooding Jr. on behalf of our client, Jane Doe. In her lawsuit, Ms. Doe alleges that Mr. Gooding Jr. raped, the actual term is he committed gender violence against Ms. Doe. Attorney Gloria Allred. In related news, five years after the Me Too movement began, a film about the case that sparked the hashtag has premiered. She said is based on Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhey's 2019 book of the same name about the New York Times investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct by movie mogul Harvey Weinstein. Jody Cantor. We had a moral obligation to finish this investigation. I mean, to me, to us, the biggest fear was having glimpsed this wrongdoing and somehow not being able to publish the story. And so I think this movie accurately shows all of the challenges that we faced. And another victim of sexual abuse by a powerful man, Andrea Constant, who alleged she was drugged and abused by Bill Cosby in 2004, says it's time to legally define consent to having sex. In Harvey Weinstein's case, as well as my case against Cosby in trial, the jury asked for a definition of consent. And, you know, the fact that there's confusion around consent, that we don't have a legal definition of consent, if we want to see any true change, we have to have change within the legal system and a definition of consent. Andrea Constant, who alleged she was drugged and abused by Bill Cosby in 2004, and Luzette Geis, the woman who said her career as a screenwriter ended after she was sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein, says although Me Too helped, the abuse is still going on. I would be very naive to think that uh, the world has changed so wonderfully and this does not still go on. That being said, I do feel like uh, this movement has made an impact that's positive. I do feel like women and men because um, honestly, many men come to me often and say, thank you so much for speaking up because it's given me the strength to speak up, which is um, interesting because um, we often talk about the women, but we don't talk about the men. So um, I, I think it has given um, everyone more power to speak up. And that is huge. Lizette Geis, the woman who said her career as a screenwriter ended after she was sexually harassed by Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison after being convicted on five charges. He was acquitted of the most serious. He's facing more charges in California. Bill Cosby was convicted and sentenced to up to 10 years in 2018. His conviction was overturned on appeal last year.
And that's the news for Saturday morning, October 15, 2022. The news is written and produced by me, Paul Durienzo. You can get the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>